Please rise as you are able for the reading of our scripture from John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Judy, for reading our lesson this morning, and welcome to this, the third Sunday of the season that we call Easter. Uh, It is a wonderful time to be together as we celebrate the 25th anniversary of Stephen Ministry, and as you can tell from your bulletin, at the conclusion of this service, uh, we'll be asking our Stephen ministers to come forward, and you'll have a chance uh, to welcome, especially those who are newly uh, consecrated and commissioned in leadership uh, through this important ministry. Uh, Sherry and I are very, very happy to have our daughter with us this morning, who is, uh, you know, a budding psychologist uh, from Georgia, in Dahlonega, Georgia, at the University of North Georgia, and her friend Zach with her today. And it's a great joy always to have her home uh, and home with us here at Brentwood. Um, So we're continuing this series called Risen with Judy. What you read is, is the third appearance of the risen Lord according to the fourth gospel. John's gospel. If you know John's gospel, you know that there are five resurrection appearances in the fourth gospel. And what's interesting in the beginning of this lesson is that it begins by noting that one of the 12 was absent on the evening that Jesus revealed himself to his friends. Verse 24 begins, but Thomas, who was also called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. You see what happens when you miss church? (laughs) I mean, you at least, you miss the opportunity for encounter with God. You miss the opportunity to be with Christ. It's interesting that Jesus says himself in Matthew 18 verse 20 that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be present as well. But Thomas wasn't there. That's intriguing to me that his absence is not excused. It's not explained. We don't know where he was. Maybe he was sick. Maybe it was a rainy day like today. Kept him away. Maybe he overslept. Or maybe, just maybe, his grief was so heavy that he couldn't bring himself to face his friends. It's interesting that nine chapters before what we read in chapter 11, verse 16, that Thomas had promised to take a bullet for Jesus. You remember this? 
where Jesus announces, I'm going to Bethany. I'm going to check on my friend Lazarus, you remember, who was so ill, the brother of Mary and Martha. He was going to Bethany against the wishes of the majority. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is risky for Jesus. The holy city is dangerous, and so the majority don't want to go, but it was Thomas who stood up and said, hey, let's all go with him to Jerusalem that we may die with him. Thomas said that. But when the going got tough, Thomas sort of lost his nerve. And now in his mind, on this day, after all of that grief and death, the sight of his friends will only serve to remind him of his own betrayal and failure. And so he's a no-show. It's interesting that sometimes grief does that. Have you ever experienced it? Sometimes there are moments in our lives that are so difficult that instead of sharing that with others, like Stephen ministers, we kind of go inward. We quarantine our emotions. We cocoon ourselves and sometimes find it safer, at least at first, to live in isolation rather than in fellowship. I've noticed that sometimes it's possible even in church on Sunday to be physically present but spiritually absent. And I can usually tell who's really here and whose mind is in the parking lot. I can see it from here. I heard about a church a while back that was having worship and somebody passed out during the sermon. They dialed 911 and the paramedics carried out 14 people before they found the right one. (laughs) So I'm saying, and you know better than I, it's possible to be here, but not really. Physically here, but spiritually and emotionally absent. It's kind of, you remember coaching T-ball dads? You remember that? I remember coaching our son in T-ball and it didn't matter who you put out in right field. When the fly ball was hit, it went over his head and he was out there picking dandelions and he's on the field, but he's, he's not in the game. Thomas wasn't there. When he returned, the disciples did what Jesus told them to do. What he commissioned them to do, they shared their witness. They tried to share their experience. We have seen the Lord, they said, but their testimony fell on stony ground. Thomas would have none of it. In fact, it's intriguing, isn't it, that not only did their testimony fail to convince Thomas, it actually served to deepen his despair. Have you ever been in that moment where you're walking some lonesome valley and some giddy person comes up to you, bebopping, sharing a glory sighting with you, and you want to say, woohoo? Because it's hard to celebrate somebody else's faith when you're losing yours. It's hard to celebrate somebody else's newfound joy when you're questioning yours. And so Thomas sort of reigns on the parade, doesn't he? I don't know about you, but I've always thought of Thomas as sort of the Eeyore of the movement. You know what I mean? I love Eeyore. You remember how Pooh Bear comes to Eeyore one day and says, good morning, Eeyore. And Eeyore says, good morning, Pooh Bear. If it is a good morning, which I doubt. And Pooh says, what's the matter? Nothing, Pooh Bear, nothing. 
We can't all, and some of us don't. That's all there is to it. Can't all what? Asked Pooh, rubbing his nose. Gaiety, song and dance. Here we go round the mulberry bush. Eeyore. Call him a pessimist, maybe a realist. But Thomas was sort of the Eeyore of the group. And he reigns on, listen to his cynical response to their witness. Unless I see the nail prints and touch the wounds and jab my hand into his side, I'll have none of it. And yet, let me caution you about being too judgy about Thomas. Because the truth of the matter is, Thomas is only asking for what the disciples had already received. Isn't it interesting that initially, the disciples' response to the women who came back announcing that Jesus was alive, they didn't believe a word of it. They said it's an idle tale until they saw him for themselves. Haven't you discovered before there is no possible way to have a first-hand experience in a second-hand way? Thomas wasn't there Now, the truth of the matter is, and I don't have to tell you, doubt is an inevitable part of the faith journey. If you're here this morning and you have questions, let me assure you, you are not alone. You are in the right place. It's an inevitable part of the faith journey. Isn't it interesting that in the Great Commission scene, if you go over to Matthew 28, verse 16 and 17, just before Jesus says to his friends, go into all the world and make disciples, Verse 16 says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Really? (laughs) They doubted their own experience. It's part of the journey. Paul Tillich, the great German-American theologian said, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is one element of faith. Galileo said it is the father of discovery, doubt. Tennyson said there lives more faith in honest doubt than in half the creeds. And perhaps he's right. We're two weeks away from confirmation Sunday. Did you know that? Two weeks from today, we'll have 100 sixth graders who will be standing before us, 10 middle highs, their families, their friends in faith, grandparents, parents, will be standing before us. I think the greatest days in the life of the church are Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, and Confirmation. And one of the things that's a part of our tradition at Brentwood we love is a couple of weeks before Confirmation, we have these interviews with these sixth graders. They can sign up for any clergy, any pastor that they want, and they interview us. They ask questions, or we ask questions of them, and when we get to the end, if they have a question or two, they can ask us, and they're always interesting. Usually, they only have one or two questions, but I had a 12-year-old boy this week who had more questions for me than I did for him. I mean, I only took 15 minutes. He took 25 minutes. We were going, oh, these were good questions, but I felt as though, I felt like I was interviewing for my own job at one point. He asked things like this, do you get nervous when you preach? Where do you get your stories? Do they pay you? (laughs) 
And then he got personal. How much do they pay you? Do, do you work one day a week or do you work during the week as well? And then the last question that stuck with me, do you ever have a doubt? Do you ever have a doubt about God? Lane Davis preached last week, I hope you were here, on Luke 24 on the Emmaus Road experience. If, if you weren't here, you got to hear that sermon online. It's a brilliant sermon. And he titled it, The Meeting After the Meeting. I love that because that's really where it happens, isn't it? It's not just the meeting, it's the meeting after the meeting. And he saw this text, The Road to Emmaus, as the meeting after the meeting. It was interesting that I preached this same text two days before Lane did in another context. I, I preached the Emmaus Road text in Pulaski, Tennessee, at the chapel event for the presidential inauguration, and I took a little different tactic with it. I began by talking about how this scene begins with, with a deep sense of grief and doubt. You see it in Cleopas, one of the followers of Jesus, and then the anonymous disciple. These two disciples notice their demeanor and countenance. It's Easter Sunday evening. They have not seen the risen one. They have heard rumors that he's alive. But their last memory of Jesus was on Friday when he was bleeding to death on a cross, and later they laid him to rest. They're leaving Jerusalem. It's late in the afternoon. They're walking west towards a setting sun. They are myopic. They cannot see the future. And even their conversation is past tense. We had hoped that he was the one to come. They're just covered in the dust of grief and doubt. And then Luke says, a stranger joins them along the way. Now, whenever you see the word stranger in the text, there's about to be an epiphany. Jesus said, when you do it to the stranger, you have done it unto me. Hebrews 13, 2 says, when you entertain strangers, you are actually entertaining angels unaware, right? As early as Genesis 15, when Abram and Sarah in their 90s have a visit from three strangers announcing that this old woman is to conceive and bear a child, they knew it was of God. Good heavens, even the place they were staying, Oaks of Mamre, sounds like assisted living. <laughs> and these strangers, all of a sudden you know that God is near. And a stranger joins them as they're walking this grievous road. It's Jesus, of course, but they don't know it. And what's interesting to me is in that story, Jesus engages them in conversation, but he doesn't do it as we expect it. He doesn't give an edict. He doesn't give a pronouncement. He leads with a question. What are you boys talking about along the road as you walk? And they're shocked. Are you the only stranger who's out of touch in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there? And Jesus, another question, what things? And I, why does Jesus ask a question to which he already knows the answer? Rob, good teachers do that, don't they? Good leaders do that. Cal Turner, one of the finest leaders I know, former CEO, now and then I'll ask Cal for some advice and he'll answer my question with a question. 
and it's irritating. <laughs> I asked him the other day, Cal, why do you always answer my question with a question? And he said, why do you ask? <laughs> it's annoying. Some of you do it. Bishop Pennell does it. Bishop Spain does it. Susan Graham, the lay leader, does it. And I finally figured out where they got it. They got it from Jesus. I was looking through the Gospels the other day, and I counted 300 questions that Jesus asked in the Gospels, and only a handful of edicts, like, who do you say that I am? Who is my neighbor? Is it legal to do what's good on the Sabbath? How many loaves do you have? Do you love me more than these? I mean, the man just questions all, 300 questions and a handful of edicts. Why ask a question when he already knows the answer? Because I think he wants to know what you think. The most neglected education in the world is the absence of reflection on my own experience. Jesus not only allows the question, he actually asks the question. And in Luke 24, the question prompts these two grieving disciples to retrace the story, to reiterate the gospel story and in 112 words, they tell the gospel. That's seven more than the Apostles' Creed. And then the stranger reinterprets their experience in the context of Scripture. And he puts the stars back in their sky. And he makes sense of their purpose and their life. To the point where after the supper, you know, when they get to Emmaus and the stranger, and they see the marks, and then he vanishes, what's their witness? What do they say? Were not our hearts burning within us as he walked with us along the road and broke open the scriptures? And they ran back seven miles, that's 14 miles round trip in the dark with the good news we have seen him. We have seen the Lord. And it turns out that revelation doesn't happen in the absence of doubt. Jesus actually meets us at the point of our deepest need, even our grief and doubt, and restores our faith. I guess Fred Beekner was right when he said, doubt is the ants in the pants of the faithful keeps us moving. But the biggest miracle to me in John 20 is that the disciples don't shut Thomas out. They don't exclude him because of his honest doubt. Sometimes we do. Sometimes a person is having a faith crisis and it makes us feel insecure about our own faith. And without realizing it, we can sort of give the cold shoulder to one who's having an authentic struggle with life. But not these guys, not these disciples. Apparently they're secure enough with their own experience that they leave the lights on for Thomas and they leave the door open. 
they stick by him. And eight days later, they're together again on Sunday. And this time, Thomas is there, and so is Jesus. Shalom, alachem, said the Lord, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas. This is the closest to the Greek translation. Listen to this. Thomas, bring your finger over here. See my hands, touch my side. Stop with the unbelief and believe. And apparently, Thomas didn't need to touch him at all. He fell on his face and he uttered the greatest confession of faith in the New Testament. My Lord and my God. That's a pretty high Christology. My God. And Jesus responded in a way that ought to be encouraging to us. Thomas, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are all those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. The second child that came to see me the other day was a 12-year-old little girl. I could see she was a heavy hitter, and so I asked her a heavy question. I said, how do you know that Jesus is alive? Have you ever seen him? And she thought a moment and said, no, but I have seen evidence of Jesus in others. I have seen him in my church. I've seen him in my small group leaders. I have seen him in Miss Maggie. And that's how I know. It's hard to argue with experience, isn't it? And according to Jesus, that little girl is blessed. She hasn't seen, but she believes. I got one example and I'm finished. Some of you know the name Bishop Bev, jo Bev, Bev Jones. I have a picture of Bishop Bev Jones who died about six weeks ago at the age of 91. He was a great saint of the church. He's a native Georgian. Years ago, he took his children when he was a young pastor camping in the North Georgia mountains to our version of Beersheba in North Georgia is called Camp Glisten in Dahlonega, Georgia, where my daughter's in school. If you've not been to Dahlonega, let me help you. It's right between Juneau and Claremont, <laughs> uh, just down the road from Lula. Now you know where it is. He'd taken them on a hike. They were gone for several hours, and somehow or other, they veered off the beaten path, and they got lost. He said the weather turned rough. All of a sudden, it became cold. There were heavy thunderstorms and flashes of lightning, and my children were cold and wet, and we were going in circles, getting nowhere. He said, suddenly, we saw at the bend of the path there a little lean-to with the smoke coming out of the chimney and, you know, one of those houses where the dogs are under the house. <laughs> Bev knocked on the door, and this bearded old man with faded jeans and flannel opened the door and let him in. Bev said, I wasn't sure we needed to go in, but we were cold and wet. We stood by the fire. We dried off and warmed up. He gave us a couple of towels. He was a strange man. He didn't say much, and he said, I could tell by my children's faces that they were a little spooked by this man. But after a few moments, I thanked him, and 
I said to him, if you'll just point us towards the camp, we'll be on our way. And he said, I can't do that. I said, sir, it's, it's almost dark. We need to get on our way. Just point us the right direction and we'll find the path. He said, I can't do that. And now he said, we were really getting nervous. And then he said, I'll have to show you the way. I'll take you there. You'll follow me. And off they went. And Bev said, honestly, I didn't know at first if he intended to help us <laughs> or harm us. But we had no choice. We followed him. He took us to the trail, but he didn't turn around there. He led us all the way back to the camp. In fact, he said he became the way for us. And we said thank you, and he disappeared in the woods, and we never even knew his name. Bev said the whole experience reminded me of my faith journey he said, all my life, I've wanted a map. I wanted God to give me a map so that I'd know exactly where I am and where I'm going. But God has never given me a map. Instead, he gave me a man. He gave me Jesus. We're not always sure where he's going. <laughs> but if we follow him, he'll get you home. Bev said in his last years, the older I get, the fewer items I have in my creed and the more I have faith in God. Now, I have no idea. I have no idea where you are today. Some of you may be on a high mountaintop. I hope you are. Some of you may be feeling a little lost. Some of you have kind of wandered off the beaten path, and you almost didn't come today. You're struggling, you're grieving, you need some direction, some guidance. You've come to the right house, but I don't have a map, but I know a man. I know a savior who will meet you at the point of your deepest need. And if you'll follow him, he'll be your shelter in the storm. He'll be your peace in the chaos. He'll be your light in the darkness because after all, he is the way. He is the truth and the life. And he will get you home. And the evidence is all around us. It's all around us. Amen.